0: Welcome back
1: to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones.
0: I'm Bill Boran. and that opening song was the latest hit from the new band Foxygen.
1: That video, I'll put it in the show notes. That video is, whoever produced that should produce everything. I mean, it, it, that, that is so with it.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and I think the audience should know that I'm the one who introduced Absolutely. that. Absolutely. It. It's group to you. Yeah, I, I think the singer sounds, if uh, Mick Jagger and Tom Petty had a child... Love child. That would be the – That's what the guy sounds like. But it's a fun it's a fun video and it's a fun sound and
1: – Foxygen.
0: Foxygen. <laughs> and I think it's really appropriate for the political climate, follow the leader. That's what we should be
1: doing. The fear – Yeah. yeah. By,
0: by the way, uh, we are often – one of our – I would say one of the top five influences – inspirations consistently of his podcast is Dan Carlin. Oh, uh, yeah. Dan Carlin's great. And so Dan Carlin has a new one out on his, uh, on his podcast, Common Sense, that I think is a must listen. And he is, you know, we've said this before. There are very few truly open-minded, independent, independent thinkers and people.
1: T.S. Eliot said about Henry James, his mind was such a fine sith. That no idea could penetrate it. And by that, he meant ideology. Right, like the, right, the James was a, was, and was that's a, like Dan Carlin. It I mean, was a compliment. Yeah. I mean, Dan Carlin is the least ideological person that's actually doing any kind of media.
0: Right. But one thing he did remind us that uh, we don't elect a leader. We elect a public servant. That uh, the president works for us. So like the song, follow the leader, just don't do what it tells you to do.
1: Yeah, I love he talked about George Carlin's routine, public servants. Get me a glass of water.
0: You're <laughs> a servant.
1: <laughs> Serve the public.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I
1: heard a joke this week. All right. Two psych- psychics are walking down the street next to each other, and one says, you're doing all right. How am I? <laughs> <laughs> David Bowie told that before he did this rehearsal with, uh, of Under Pressure with oh. Queens Band. It was a great performance. George oh, yeah. Michael's in the background. That's I love great. that song, by the way. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So there you go. David Bowie. Who, who knew Who knew he liked bad jokes? But.
0: Matter of fact, I was talking – last year was, by the way, for those of you that are of my generation, we're still reeling. For a lot of reasons, we're still reeling from last year. But how many of our music and culture icons did not make it through 2016? A lot. So, a lot. A lot did not. Really. A lot. By the way, here's – Betty White did make it, though. Betty White did make it. One of my uh, people I knew when I was doing urban work throughout this question. I think it's worth since we're talking a little bit of music. Better guitar player, Prince or Santana. Carlos Santana. It was a no brainer for me.
1: I mean, I-, I think Santana is better like probably technical guitar player. And not a better musician, but
0: uh, I-, I was Prince without I didn't even hesitate Prince.
1: I don't know. I'd have to I know yeah. <laughs> By the way, if you haven't I would take your word for it.
0: I have yeah, if you haven't uh, seen it last year when after Prince died, uh, it was on YouTube. There was a tribute to George Harrison and Tom. Speaking of Tom Petty, Tom Petty is there. Uh, I don't remember who else was there. I know George Harrison's son was there, but uh, Prince comes out, and what Prince does uh, with "As My Guitar Gently Weeps" uh, was the things of divinity. The angels cried. It was beautiful.
1: All right, we'll we'll give it to Prince then.
0: Yeah. All right, so. We are back to the topic we were going to try to do last week: science. Science.
1: Let's she, talk about science. She blinded me. Science. science. Here we go. So, Bill and I are. G- Remember that one Seinfeld where George stops having sex and then all of his brain power, like he's, he's like, I'm going to do some science experiments for the kids, Jerry, that will dazzle the mind. <laughs> a simple joke from a simple man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah. So, Relevant Magazine published. Uh, a piece online. I don't know if it was in the print magazine too, but Science and Faith Shouldn't Be at Odds. The subtitle being The Search for Truth Doesn't Always Look the Same. And it was sort of, you know, Bill Nye is having a cultural moment right now because he's got a new Netflix show out. And they were basically saying that science and faith shouldn't be at odds.
0: And can we also just say, we were talking about this the other day, because Bill Nye was on a uh, sports talk show, uh, um, the Dan Levitard show, and he was bemoaning... The cultural moment we lived in because there is a Kyrie Irving uh, who plays for a very fine point guard. I guess he's a point guard, shooting guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers and a Duke graduate. So I had to – if you're – all those Duke out there will enjoy what I'm about to say. Um, a couple of years ago, he said he didn't think dinosaurs were real. Uh, I have – I tell you – I can tell you – Didn't he
1: see Jurassic Park?
0: I don't know. I have not spent any time trying to study the intellectual history of Kyrie Irving. But last week he said that um, the earth was flat, Okay, And he went on and on about that. Now, he has retracted that since then. But Bill Nye was on the sports talk show just totally depressed, saying that as a science educator, he feel like he had failed. Uh, And by the way, that is – we've talked about Bill Nye before – that he is has an undergraduate degree in science, so he's a science educator, and thank God for science educators, but that doesn't make you a philosopher or a scientist.
1: And not an intellectual. I mean, Dan Carlin only has a bachelor's degree in history, and that guy's a real intellectual. That guy's a real thinker, yeah. I mean, Bill Nye is, is not is not the uh, sharpest tool in the shed.
0: No, when it comes to anything outside those... Uh, his Bunsen, purview, Bunsen burners.
1: Yeah, I like Bunsen burners. I, you know, what I really like creme brulee. Making creme brulee, a little torch. I used to have a little torch, a little creme brulee torch. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. cool. So you
0: do science in the kitchen.
1: Exactly. No, I don't <laughs> cook well. I don't really do it that well either. But
0: yeah, I saw, I saw your box.
1: Exactly. Blue Apron. Everybody, <laughs> free ad for you. Blue Apron. Not that you need the publicity, but uh, so also Peter Lighthart posted what I thought was a little more profound uh, piece on his. First Things Blog, When Science Went Modern. he's quoting Lorraine Dastin, who is writing in the Hedgehog Review, which is a fabulous journal. It's interdisciplinary. It it, it comes out of the University of Virginia. It's outstanding. Uh, And Lorraine Dastin says the following. For the scientists, the realization that progress might have its dark side had been germinating since the mid-19th century, when they noticed with consternation that their publications were no longer read after a decade or so. And it had become necessary to revise university curricula and textbooks several times a generation. Last year's scientific truths, they noted with alarm, were becoming obsolete almost as rapidly as last year's fashion and millinery. By the 1890s, the pell-mell accumulation of novelties on both the theoretical and empirical fronts threatened to bury the scientists like an avalanche and to undermine the foundations of even the most stable sciences, astronomy and physics. Scientists had to rethink the relationship to science, uh, of science to history in the broadest sense, not just the past, but also the present and the future. And then Lightheart's commentary is drawing on writings of scientists, historians, philosophers. Daston ass- assessed the effect of modernity on scientists. She observes that scientists themselves seem sickened by the speed of it to, and to have lost their nerve. Confidence in scientific progress waned. Some turned cautious, some ascetic, some melancholy. They all had to face the nightmare of scientific progress. The truths of today would become the falsehoods, or at least the errors of tomorrow. Scientists prided themselves on being heirs of martyrs to truth like Galileo. They had to settle for being martyrs to progress, an inglorious martyrdom. Postmodern revulsion at at modernity isn't anti-modern. The revulsion was there at the creation.
0: Yeah, I mean it even goes back before the um 19th century. I, I can remember I can't I, I can't give you the source, but I remember that uh, That is
1: totally okay. Uh, un, right. Unnamed sources.
0: Wickabillity Wickabillity up. But um there was a debate about the crossbow bow when it was you know when it was invented and, and was being perfected in the Middle Ages. There was, uh, you know, a theologian that said, well, this it's, – it's, un- it's, it's unjust immoral.
1: war. Yeah, this weapon. It was like a nuclear bomb. Like. It's immoral because yeah.
0: it's a- so accurate. Yeah. Uh, uh, <clears throat> so uh, – but what historically has been also true that technology and scientific advancement, if it can be done and if it can be made a profit or it's useful in the destruction of other humanity, i.e. technology and science in service of military – that moral questions get put behind. For instance, you know, someone was argued. well, we do get more moral. For instance, you know, they didn't use chemical weapons uh, in, on the battlefield in World War II. Well, the reason they didn't use chemical weapons on the battlefield in World War II is when they didn't need to because they had more effective weaponry. And secondly, it wasn't effective. Half the time, the wind would blow and, and hurt your own troops. Uh, There were a lot of people killed in World War I. I think there were three or four times more people killed in World War II. So it wasn't morality that ended chemical warfare. And obviously, you know, chemical warfare has been used used freely in the Middle East and other places too.
1: So if you're like trying to be the next Warren Buffett, you know, people have different investment strategies. Bet on death and destruction with technology. The military-industrial complex complex is always a safe investment.
0: Well, that's – yeah, looking for – I mean computers came from that – robotics, you know, the drones, uh, but, um, you know, all that. And it's really interesting even going back and looking at um, the whole Manhattan Project and, you know, the struggle. I mean, some of the scientists really were struggling with what they were creating there. Others were saying, you know, we need to get it before Germany or Japan does. So there there was a kind of utility there. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, Oppenheimer is the most famous person who really – never quite uh, never quite reconciled what he had helped create there and felt guilty about it for the rest of his life.
1: Well, there you go. I like, um, I love that in American Hustle is like, it's a science of it. It cooks <laughs> with science, a microwave. It's a science of it. Now, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think Lightheart's, so I think both pieces are interesting and good. I think the, the Lightheart thing is very interesting because you think, part of like I think what uh he's and he's quoting um, daston here i mean it sounds like part of daston's theory is that if people kind of looked to science i mean right. and, and practitioners and researchers of science were like, hey, we can kind of get out of the contingencies right of history and 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 have something like eternal truths, you yeah, know like we can cross because- Lessing's ditch, yeah, yeah. and they realized the contingent nature. Right. Of their own project, and that I think, like this is like Ernst Becker, right? the denial of death stuff. Like you know, it, it uh, we're always looking to cheat death.
0: Well, the other thing too is that I mean, we're always trying to find something that the newest inerrant thing. You know, we always are looking for a sure bet metaphysically, or just to orient our life. And with the end of an inerrant Bible and the end of a all-powerful inerrant God, I mean, I'm talking from a philosophical. Kind of uh, the way the Western world has gone, then they thought you know science was going to be the new religion, and there's still people who talk about uh, science in a religious way. I mean, there are still it's and it, there are people, open-minded people in the scientific community, who now realize science exactly what you said, and that there's historical, historical, and epistemological issues that are apart from the actual data. And scientific fact: a great, uh, a great, really accessible book on this is Bill Bryson's "A History of Everything," and really traces the explosion of knowledge and how, whether it be geo- geology or whatever different sciences, that you know at the beginning of the scientific age, and you know that it was something that was like really popular for people. You know, people really at the turn of the you know nineteenth uh, uh, century, some of the most popular books in England, for instance, were books about. Uh, moss and you know different kinds of moss and different things like that, and yet hmm. uh, very quickly the explosion of data like you just that you just quoted. I mean that le- that left lay people way behind. So I, I I think
1: trying to know everything becomes increasingly harder.
0: It becomes very very difficult, and you know one of the things. And so I think one of the reactions of the contemporary age, and, and unfortunately, it's particularly. Both politicized and and also there's religious overtones. this country is the anti-intellectual anti-scientific bias of some people for economic reasons, for instance, the reason to deny global warming has is purely economically driven, and there are a bunch of um, you know people who have no vested interest matter of fact, it's in their best interest for people to fight you know the destruction of the environment. But because ideologically they're already suspicious of anything that may be written in a book or in a newspaper, they go along with the people who are making money off the destruction of the economy. and unfortunately, the new head of the EPA is owned by
1: those people. yeah and if we could get to a point like like where we just somebody like Rand Paul that, that believes that well who bought climate him? change? Can I
0: just say who bought Rand Paul? I don't know. No, he's just cook line sinker right now. But no,
1: but he he actually though like there's some people that you know, mainstream Republicans actually will acknowledge that climate change is a reality. Now now they'll debate whether or not like how to hold that intention with how we you know mine for things like energy or generate energy and stuff. So like at that point we can have an intelligent discussion about right, right. about how much we contribute to it Absolutely. how much but i feel like the kind of like denial that it's a reality it's just uh, there's no mainstream industrialized nation that has this kind of thing where it's just it, it, you know it, it's a complete like denial of right. some of the best research
0: and there's 95% consensus among the scientific community that climate the, the you know, it's it's indisputable evidence. The world's getting warmer. We're in one of the war, we're in a warming, an extreme warming up period, and it's happening quicker than say, when a comet or something hit us in the past. The other thing is, again, uh, and you and I have talked about this before, but how a person can actually think the world's only six thousand years old, and the fact is, what like one third, something like one one third of our country that does not think evolution is true. Oh, it's
1: higher than that. And
0: that seems to me, I mean, that means that half, half, whatever percentage, and a lot of them are driven by the fact that there's a, there is a war between science and faith. So, in other words, a significant percentage of our population have a worldview that is bound, you know, have, has a worldview less sophisticated than John Locke. Now, maybe a lot of us have a less worldview less sophisticated than John Locke. But they're still Newtonian, they're in the Newtonian period in terms of their scientific cosmology. And I think that's just I mean, it's bad for the it's bad for the world, it's bad for education, it's bad for the children, and I think it's absolutely uh, a crime against faith. I mean, there's probably nothing more detrimental right now to the spread of Christianity or the sharing of the faith or the reputation of Christianity. Or the missionary impulse of Christianity than the anti-intellectualism that you know, millions of people have.
1: And I always say to people that are tab- – like you mean to say we come from apes? Well, Genesis 1 says we come from dirt. So apes are a step up. I think that's – I yeah, mean that's you – know, that, I think that's almost more dignified.
0: <laughs> right. And the fact is you know, the theological questions and the scientific questions are different ones. Yeah. And I think that's part – there's no inherent contradiction between biblical Christianity – properly understood, and scientific fact and theory. I mean, it's two different realms. But part of it is you just have a lot of uneducated or undereducated clergy and teachers and leaders and the people who listen and follow folks who who tell them what they think they want to hear. Again, I, I think I posted this uh, sign. Uh, Don't believe everything you think. I mean, <laughs> that's a very important credo. And now it's even, you know, like trickled over to the anti-vaccination movement. Um, I mean, diseases that we thought were eradicated are propping up again. Yeah. Because, and and again, I, you know, I've dealt with folks, I've dealt with the tragedy and and all the complexities of parents dealing with children on the spectrum, uh, you know, and how did this happen? You know, and the fact is that, you know, there seems to be some research that elevated levels of metal, and our systems help, um you know, create, you know, the conditions that may lead to autism. You know, we're still trying to work through that. But to make that leap to the fact that, you know, vaccinations are what's causing the uprise in autism when there are so many other factors that should be considered, uh, none the least, the pollution in the environment, people delaying to later having children so there's more time for there to be genetic mutations, all these things. Uh, There are a lot of factors that could go into the uprise as well as just we're more sensitive about diagnosing the condition. And so this has fed this anti-vaccination that is – there's just no science behind
1: it. I would take – I would get vaccinated for anything I could. Like I'll take any vaccination I can
0: get well I remember a couple years ago when I was, I've never
1: met a vaccination I didn't i've like.
0: never I, well, I react I tend to react to all of them I don't know my, whatever my system is, I tend to react, but uh I remember a couple of years ago I was going I went to Africa I was working building a pediatric hospital there, and i after all the shots I got, I said, I think I could go swim in the Ganges and be fine
1: <laughs> yeah I mean, you would be yeah, and I think too like one of the challenges is you know t s Eliot talks about how um the problem with explanations is that they're always comprehensive. And so if I come up with an explanation, it's like what Lightheart is talking about. He's quoting this author from the Hedgehog review. You know, I I come up with an explanation for all time. So it assumes that it will finish the job As, as opposed to description. Like Ellie always says, you know, thick description. He always preferred to explanation because you and I can describe the same reality or object from two different perspectives and both, have something to say about it that could be mutually edifying yes. you know and, and come out with a better and perspective on on something so i think in matters of religion and science when description uh, is is takes precedence over prescription or comprehensive eternal theories then then there's room for a conversation right as opposed to you know, we talked about the whole Harry Frankfurt thing about truth, you know. And you, you part of the salutary, he thinks, morally formative nature of becoming a lover of the truth is you learn your own limits. and, and Truth, death, <laughs> reality, right. these things. Part of the, the humanizing element of attending to them and describing them is that you, you get a sense of self that gets hemmed in. You, 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 right. learn, you learn who... You are, and the beauty and ugliness of all your limitations, right. you know the good, the bad, and the ugly. whereas i, I think sometimes ideology is always the like the, the opposite of that. Right. I mean, ideology is always attempting to control. But I think that whether it's in matters of critical reflection on metaphysics or faith or on the natural world, the real scholar of it is one that describes more than they prescribe and is right. uh, is constantly open and exhilarated by the open-ended nature of the conversation.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, this past week I I preached on Ephesians 5, and uh, it's a fascinating passage in terms of uh, Paul talking about marriage and things like that. And one of the things I said was, it's not surprising that a first-century Jewish man would say that women should be submitted to their husbands. What's surprising and revolutionary is— he begins the, ta- the passage by saying, "Submit to one another." Now, it's hilarious. The new Ni- the NIV, New King James Version, a lot of other conservative translations will put your sacred heading, you know, the the inspired heading, and they'll break twenty two five twenty two and five twenty three. So, what clearly is meant, submit to one another, and then to talk about marriage, they divide and they they put that in a different pericope or different kind of passage. So for for you know, years, people have, when they've preached on this passage or taught this passage, did not begin with the idea of submit to one another. So if the first thing you say about husbands and wives, submit to one another, that's the overarching thing. Uh, but what is amazing about Paul that he says that, and then he also tells husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And then if you stop and think about the servant sacrificial love of Christ— you know, it totally deconstructs any kind of pagan or you know, middle Platonic view of hierarchy, which which was Paul's cosmology. In other words, Paul does not have an inspired or an errant cosmology; he inherits the worldview of his time. And a good, you know, that's that, that's good historic and philosophical research will actually help you disentangle um, the passage a little bit from its cultural moorings. And, and allow you to hear the fresh word not only that it was for Paul's time, but for us as well. And I think the fact that people—and, of course, people are selective anyway. People have selective biblical worldviews. But I think science and what's true about you know, social sciences as well, philosophy, history, all those things, are, are not only optional and helpful uh, accompaniments to the faith, but they're absolutely essentials.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. I think and this Sunday is Transfiguration Sunday. And so like I I think like if I was going to like make one of those inspired subtitles above the Transfiguration story, for instance in like Matthew's Gospel, I would say, "Here's Peter's plan to ruin your life." It's like anytime something good happens, right? <laughs> Whether it's like yeah. uh this is a good year in our marriage or this is a good year in our church life. Or this the business remember really well this year. We try to control it and box it up. And when things go bad, if we could just get back to that right. thing, it becomes a kind of security blanket, where yeah, you know, Jesus is appears in all of his glory with Moses and, Elijah, and Peter's like, let's build three tents, and yeah. no, no, no. And in fact, in Luke it says, I think it's his Exodus in Greek, like his 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 to the cross, right. uh, to death and resurrection. So, you know, the opposite of of the the good gift and the good life is trying to box it up and control it because that it always spoils the thing when you can't just receive it but try to achieve or control it and I think too I think and this is where I think theology has something to say and Christian theology has something to say to the, in in public life you know when Jesus is sleeping in a boat he's in the stern right sleeping in the stern yeah, yeah it's a small boat but he's, yeah. yeah he's sleeping so in that's the fascinating historical details that are in these count sometimes but and the storm comes up and the disciples wake him up and he's surprised that they're so startled because he's in the boat like right. if I'm you know, the so I mean the great Christian truth that we're justified by faith, not our ideas about science or philosophy or, or our ideas about faith. You know, like right. there's a sense in which if if you know if you have a certain sense of assurance of of divine acceptance, then you can handle uh, ideas crumbling because that's not right. they're not doing identity work for you. But if you don't have that assurance. Then ideas or some sort of other idol will have to do the work for you. And even when there's no storm, you'll be ridden with anxiety because you like, what if the storms calls up? What if the, the yeah. ideas is overthrown? So I think that that, yeah. that uh, life is a gift. Yeah. Uh, and so can faith and science be.
0: Yeah. And I think that's part of why, for instance, and then there's a lot of ways inerrancy of the Bible is talked about that's really heretical because you don't need God. You don't, I mean, if your view of scripture, Means that it stands without the Holy Spirit, then you have a you have a you have a faulty view of scripture i, I was thinking i think I, what you just said resonates so amazingly and we talked about it as the previous podcast is your faith in Christ what Christ has done, or is your faith in your belief about what done? Yeah. and that's a huge difference uh, i also I was, and i don't know if i've ever sa- said this maybe i've said this before, but my first the very first class i ever sat in in seminary was part of a fuller extension that Young Life had at the time. And our professor was late, so our guest professor was your teacher, Dr. Daryl Guder. Yeah. And I can always remember Daryl began the lecture with this statement. He said, If your theology is at tension with reality, then you need to t- change your theology.
1: Yeah. And I think that God's self witness in Holy Scripture is perfectly reliable. And Sometimes we get frustrated because in our struggle with it, it doesn't seem reliably perfect.
0: (laughs) Amen.
2: Ground control to Major Tom. Check ignition And may God's love Be with you This is Today, for here am I sitting in a tin